but yeah, it's all, I mean, it's always good to evolve. It's never good to just think like, okay, this is my politic now. I totally agree. I wanted to bring up in the W.E.B. Du Bois podcast uh, uh, series is how his politics kept evolving. He was well into his nineties, like Mm -hmm. everything that he had already accomplished and contributed he could have just been like, okay, this is where I'm at and I'm not going any further. But mm-hmm. I mean, well into his nineties, he was still evolving, still learning, still growing. Yeah. I, I see that with some of my friends where I'm like, how have you stopped like thinking about politics? Like, how have you just hit like a roadblock and like, this is where you are when like, there's so much to learn and understand. Like, I, I don't understand how you can still not, not be curious and like not try to evolve yeah. basically. I think it, oh, Hey, I saw you, uh, you're in, I saw you had joined, but yeah, I think it's more of a, it all starts with the way that we're taught to view education and learning as mm-hmm. children, yes. like from a very young age, it's like meet, wrote, meet these benchmarks so that you can check these things off so that one day you can go out and be a productive member of society. Yes. And it's more about like, by this age, you should know these things. So once you've checked off all those benchmarks, it's like, okay, now I can just live. Mm-hmm. When learning should be a part of living and be integrated into it. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I feel like we're just so indoctrinated from such a young age to be workers and productive. And and it's, I'm not, I'm going to really try not to do that with my kids. That's That's my like, my yeah, contribution. I really wanted my son to go to a Montessori school when he Me was too. younger for that reason, but they're so expensive. I looked into them because I I really like the Montessori philosophy, and I like the way they are they let like independent thinking and independent play. And I try to do that with my own kids as independent play. Um, and they're like, it's here. It's even cheaper than everywhere else, and it's still like eight grand a year. And I'm like, I can't afford that. That's insane. You know what's interesting? We have a public Montessori school and it's a magnet. Okay. Somehow, somehow, all the white kids from that neighborhood got into that magnet. Somehow, somehow. Funny how that works. Funny that. Funny that. Yeah. It's it's like I live in DC where they kind of DC is was kind of like the testing ground, I think. Well, mm-hmm. one of them, one of the testing grounds for like charter schools. And I think about it's about 50-50 now in terms of um, charter schools and like regular public schools, but they have the DC lottery. And so when I first moved here, my son was four and I was very lucky to get him into the school that I wanted him to get into because the neighborhood that I lived in, the schools were like lower on the scale. Like if you go to great schools, they're like twos and threes. Um, but most of the kids don't go to their neighborhood schools. Like if you go to your neighborhood school, it's because your parents just didn't even bother to put you into the DC lottery. Right. And for two years, I tried to get him into the lottery to get into an immersion school. They had a Spanish immersion school, Cesar Chavez school, and I couldn't get him into the, uh, any of the immersion schools, any of the, uh, Montessori schools. So I was just really lucky to keep him in the public school that he was in because the lottery isn't just for charters. It's for all schools. So you can live in any part of D.C. and go to any public school in any other part of D.C. and you ride the metro for free or they have like shuttle buses. Right. But the way and it's like it's meant to be equitable. 
And I just think instead of a lottery, why don't you just invest in like rebuilding some of the public schools in the poor neighborhoods and giving them like better funding, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of putting the TFA teachers who half the time don't even want to be there or they're just doing this because their grades coming out of undergrad weren't good enough to get into whatever grad program. So they're going to add TFA to their resume so they can try again or whatever. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just put the money into making the neighborhood schools better so that kids don't have to travel all the way across town? Because my neighbor's daughter went to a school near Georgetown and I live clear on the other side of D.C. That's a that's quite a commute. Especially yeah, so at kid. eight years old, she That's was traveling crazy. with her little violin case to go to a much nicer school. And it's also like those lottery programs. It takes all the talent out of, you know, the poorer schools. Mm-hmm. As soon as they see like a black or Latino child that has any sort of, you know, scholastic aptitude. Now you're shipping them over to the schools that are rated nine and ten. And that's why they keep getting rated nine and ten. Right. And, right, and not only do you lose the more talented students, you lose the parents who are willing to advocate for their children, the most active parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Terrible system we got here. So I apologize if my sound isn't particularly great today. I'm coming live from my fucking car. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is um, I'm, I'm selling my house. And I think the inspectors are in there right now. And my home sale actually ties into one of the subjects we're going to talk about on the show today. Because uh, one of the buyers of my house is a Chinese investor. Ah. That's very serendipitous. Yeah, I personally don't give a shit who buys the house. I'm just happy to be selling in this market. Yeah, that's good for you. It's, you know, the seller. And you know what? And I'm not leaving the neighborhood, so there's no displacement of Black people. I'm moving to the slightly wealthier part of the neighborhood. Not the rich part of the neighborhood, because that's a whole other thing. There's, oh, okay. All right, well, congrats. I know you kind of didn't want to sell your house. I know that's where you kind of were at. You're like, I don't really want to do this. But now you've done it. And here you are. Oh, we hope. Well. So we find out that we have to fix everything because this shit is held together with duct tape and gum. I was going to say, you're so lucky it didn't rain. Your basement is dry. Shh. I'm snitching, Amanda. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to find this podcast. Come on. Yeah, I, I apologize about the acoustics. It's all good. I'm really, really excited about this show. Yes, me too. Um, today we have a guest, and we've been trying to have her on for a couple of weeks now, a while. Um, and we're so glad you finally joined us, uh, Dana. I'm so glad to finally be here. Like, I need to get better at checking my email and just keeping up with everything that I commit to. I know it's hard. It's hard. I, I get it. Um, Dana has a podcast, Musings on History. You can find it wherever podcasts are, and it's excellent. It's a one great- of my favorite podcasts. I've <clears throat> I've yes. totally become a fan. I uh, I love I love your podcasts you've done on words. They're so good, and the way words are used wrong a lot of the time. 
Um, on the show most of the time. No, we do that. We're not experts here. Um, also, I loved your, um, oh shit. What is his name? See, I have, I have a memory problem. Uh, what is his name? The English guy who is terrible. And he's a piece of shit. Oh, Winston Churchill. <laughs> that could be any of them. I know, right? Winston yeah. Churchill. So good. I have never liked him. And it was so nice to like hear in one spot all the reasons why he's such a piece of shit. Somebody, so somebody that like, I get really interesting emails. And so someone who is studying like early modern to like early modern English history or British history, I'm not sure which one they would call it, up to like the modern day. He emailed me and he was like, you know, I study this and there's some stuff that I still didn't realize. He was like, but you're still like underestimating Churchill's death toll. I was like, what? I mean, How it's is disgusting. That He's like, he did this in Burma and he did this and that with China and this and that happened in the Philippines. I'm just like, wow, that guy was uniquely evil. Right. And the propaganda around him is just it's crushing. It. You, you can't get through to a lot of people that he was actually a terrible person yeah like I tried to just like make it numerical like because of his actions xyz numbers of people died mm-hmm. but when you don't place all people's lives on the same you know playing field it's kind of like okay they were just Kenyan they were just Indian right yeah and then you know the longer it takes to the, you know, the further away from the history that it is, because I mean, this man lived a really long time, the further away they are from that history, like this happened in the 1880s, why should I care now? Like, things don't just, that's, that's the main thing that I want people to understand about history is that it's not, nothing is static, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's the butterfly effect, but it's an actual real thing that you can see and observe and quantify and like think decisions that were made in the 1890s are still affecting people that those whose ancestors were affected back in the 1890s are still being affected by that today. That's why it's important Mm -hmm. to know these things. That's funny that you went there because our first topic we're going to talk about is uh, this Ellie Kemper story and the Veiled Prophet. And um, I'm sure our listeners are aware, uh, but it came out just recently that Ellie Kemper was crowned queen of what is it? Love and love and queen of love and beauty, love and beauty of this secret. It's not so secret, but this rich white people's society called the Veiled Prophet. And it actually, the Veiled Prophet, this society, uh, we, Jason and I did a little bit of digging, and that just means we listen to other podcasts. <laughs> and um, and it turns out that it was uh, this society was started in response to putting down a labor movement in St. Louis that was in, I think, 1877. And uh, the first Veiled Prophet was the uh, chief of police who crushed that labor movement in St. Louis. And I think 18 people were killed. It's so crazy to me how it's like being watered down in the discourse like already. Mm -hmm. Like what? It's just the most powerful people in society, you know, having this super secret ball to gloat over how they're the most powerful people in society. Why do you even care? Like, yeah, I definitely care what type of activities the 
chief of police engages in. Right. I mean, it, it, the whole society was formed basically as a like, fuck you to people like don't fuck with us. That's what the whole society was like. We are rich. We are powerful and we will crush you. That's why it was like put together. So it's like, of course, it's important. Right. So this organization was founded a couple of years before the Klan mm-hmm. by and, uh, a couple of old Confederate officers. Right. And they their imagery from their very first like costume that they wore is definitely Klan. It's like a white robe and a white pointed hat or mask or whatever. Yeah. So at, at any given time, one person actually has the title of the veiled prophet. And he's supposedly the richest person or most powerful person. Well, he's the who he's the de facto leader of um, the organization at that point. But throughout the organization's history, we only have the identity of two veiled prophets. Yes, the first one, who was the uh, police commissioner, right? And the second one, we found out through one of the craziest events <laughs> that I've ever read about. Right. Um, there, there's a local, um, a local black civil rights organization called action and i'm not going to remember what the acronym stands i for. can't either it's just action. They've been protesting against the veil profit for a while mm-hmm. and they got white people to join their cause right. and one white woman through a friend was able to secure an invitation to the ball now the funny thing about the veil profit is that we don't know any of its members we can only guess who its members are by who is named princess i'm sorry queen of Beauty and love. It's usually a daughter of the most prominent families, and that's mm-hmm. how we assume what the membership is. Right. Well, this woman was on a balcony, seated above above the stage, and um, a public building. They were using public space and public funds for these ceremonies. Right. And she decided that she wanted to get on the stage. She saw a cable going from the balcony to the stage and decided to zip line on that bitch down to the stage. Of course she broke a couple ribs. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. It broke. She crash landed on the stage and thinking quickly on her feet and being a white woman, she said, I just fell over the balcony. And they believed her. They're like, oh, of course. <laughs> it's like, sure, sure. So she um, scurried to her feet. Another one of the women who was there claimed that she fell. So all the attention went to the other woman. That's when she ran across the stage snatched the hood or the veil off of the veil prophet and revealed an executive vice president of Monsanto. Dun, dun, dun. This happened in full view of the press. Every media outlet in Missouri was there covering the ball. Yes. None None of them. them, Not one reported the identity. Not one of them. And that just shows you that always that the the media is almost always co-opted into, you know, by the ruling elite, you know, they're just, they're, they're, their masters too. They get, they, they're not, it's not some sort of free press that's for the people. Come on. Yeah. It's, there's a, there's definitely a pecking order and like, it kind of led me down this rabbit hole. Cause like I was telling you um, before I started off uh, listening to Mike Duncan's history of Rome and seeing his political evolution. I want to ask him like, do you still have, do you still feel the same way about like the Roman Republic and some of these figures from the Roman Republic that you had admiration for and others that you didn't seem to have admiration for? Because he talked about in the early, early days of the Republic, because the Roman Republic came together quite haphazardly, 
And it was basically founded by the scum of central Italy who were not welcomed by any of the other major tribes, the Latins, the Sabines, the Etruscans and stuff. And so they literally had to like rape women. Like they stole an entire tribe of women. It's called the rape of the Sabines. Oh my God. They literally stole an entire tribe of women because nobody would willingly marry Roman citizens. And they were afraid that Rome would die out if they did, you know, if they couldn't get anybody to marry them. But he still talks about these figures of the early Republic, like this guy, Cincinnatus, who Cincinnati is named for. Cincinnatus was a patrician. He had a farm. He was against plebs, plebs, however you want to call it, having like voting rights. He didn't want to extend voting rights to Roman allies. And he was a military commander who like reinstilled a sense of religiosity into uh, Roman military and civic life because without that, they were just these bloodthirsty people. They were absolutely ridiculous. And like, he talks about him so glowingly. And so there's an order of Cincinnatus in the military. And it started off as being an order that anyone could join if you were in the military and it promoted like virtue and just law and military code of honor. And now it's real a really secret society that they don't publish anything and it's hereditary now. So it's a mm, little bit- Really? Yeah, it's a little bit antithetical, but you know that like, Somebody like, like they don't publish who was in it, but you know, John McCain was probably in it and John Kerry was probably in it. Sure. And it's just like, these people have a lot, they have undue influence. Like they have a lot of say over not just discourse, but the way that we live our lives, Mm. you know? Yes. Like you can be gay, but if the president doesn't agree with it, then it's possible that that could become illegal. What you are can become illegal. Just it's not a true democracy. Yeah. Off the strength of like what these select group of individuals think, but people want to give them so much liberty. Like they're allowed to have private lives. That's what someone said about Ellie Kemper. She's allowed to have a private life. And it's like, do you know how much money her parents have put into St. Louis politics over the years? You know, what's funny is other people's private lives. Exactly. It's it's funny because this is just like a a side thought about the whole Ellie Kemper thing. Um, It just shows you that. Anybody that you really see in the public life, whether it's in movies or TV or musicians or whoever it is, most of them come from wealth. And that's like the big lie that they tell us is this is a meritocracy. And it's like, actually, it's not um, because you have to even be successful as an actress or go do improv. You have to have so much money to support yourself so you don't have to work. You have to live in New York or L.A. without a day job or like waiting tables. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many how many people I know from improv and sketch and stand up from when I was doing that who were in a completely different socioeconomic situation than I was. They did not have to work. They came from wealth. So they they had a lot more time and energy to focus on their craft. That's just my side point. 
me and being it really bitter. does make an impact on like what type of art comes out like what type of comedy is produced what yes you know when everybody when you have to come from money to make it as a comedy writer or something like that it's like no wonder it just seems like everything is so narrow these Mm, days yes kind of like the real funny is coming from those of us at the bottom and then those that have the time to just sit on Twitter and follow funny accounts or, you know, just regular funny people, then they write about those people and they like distillate it for the general public. And you can always tell like a rich person wrote this as though they were poor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the like amount of bandwidth that's given is like such a, like you said, a narrow, like, what the topics you can talk about are or the like even just the point of view it always comes from a capitalist point of view almost you don't really ever hear any other point of view and social media has made it easier for these people to mine ideas you you don't even have to get to know people outside of your socioeconomic circle you just open tiktok yeah well that was a a digression back back let's go back to veiled profit um oh yes uh, it's okay. We always do that. That's that's like our thing is we just digress, digress, digress until we're like, what were we talking about? Um, so a lot of people have said the Veil Profit is not explicitly a white supremacist organization. And I guess that is not part of its mission. And they did start allowing black members in the 70s. By the way, that is the only time they've ever publicized membership. Yep. When they were like, we brought some niggas in. That was it. That was the only time. Just so the thing right about it is like, America is a white supremacist country. It's founded on white supremacist ideals. Uh, the Civil War was about white supremacy. The cutting off of Reconstruction was about salvaging white supremacy. So pretty much everything that comes out of this country or is in any way tied to it and it's like continuance is going to be white supremacist in nature. Yes. So if you have any level of vested interest in creating any mythology associated with this country or continuing this country, then it's white supremacists. Yes, we always say that in this show. Everything always comes back to white supremacy. Literally every topic we ever talk about, it always comes back to that. Well, I did a little digging and found myself in the FBI archives. Ooh. And, uh, a gentleman by the by the name of Russell Byers went to the FBI and told him that a group of wealthy St. Louis businessmen, uh, led by a lawyer named uh, John Sullivan, reached out to him and offered him fifty thousand dollars to assassinate Dr. King. Wow! And this was shortly before the actual assassination. Wow! Yeah, there were like competing. So there were like competing offers. Um, when I was in college, this FBI guy who left because he fell in love with a Vietnamese woman and he went to Vietnam in the 80s and like it just it was kind of like a radicalizing experience for him. But he didn't leave until like the late 90s, though. I don't know what took so long between him going and seeing like what we had done to that country and finally being like, I can't really be an active part of this anymore. Mm-hmm. But he was just like, yeah, you know, the FBI has a tendency to, they pick and choose what they're going to take seriously and what they aren't. 
Yep. And he's like, if you only get, if you're, you know, on the radar and you only get one death threat, they're not going to take it seriously. But if you're on the radar and you have a deluge of death threats coming your way, they're also not going to take it seriously. And that's essentially what they decided to do with MLK was to not take it seriously. Like, oh, there's just so many competing groups and individuals who want to kill this guy. None of them are probably going to do it, which I don't know. That's some wacky SWOT analysis to me. (laughs) Okay. Um, what you know what's uh speaking of like people being like you know assassinated um I don't know if you knew this Jason but uh I think the the girl who did unveil the um uh, Montesanto guy Monsanto whatever I can't say it she actually had her car bomb and her house vandalized multiple times so yeah did did I, they don't play. The powers of B in St. Louis love blowing up a car, don't they? Guess so. And if we look at the number of uh, of Ferguson protesters who died under mysterious circumstances, mm-hmm. more than one was found burned in a car. Right. It's a lot of faulty engines, apparently. Um, I, I just want to say, Ellie Kemper is going to be fine. Do you think anyone in Hollywood actually gives a fuck if she was part of a white supremacist group. They don't. Do you think Ellie Kemper is even going to acknowledge this? She's not Hell gonna no. She's, she's Hell, not going to say anything She ain't going to say it. shit. She's going to wait for it to blow over. That's all she's going to do. Because that Kemper family money is a lot longer than that fucking Kimmy Schmidt money. Ugh. I did not. not those did people. you watch that show? I couldn't watch it. I watched season I watched one. it for Titus. Okay. I, yes, he was He was great. I watched the first season, but I was just like, I can't watch this show. I don't think the writing is good. You know, the more I watch it, the more I realize that uh, it's got that stink of Tina Fey racism on it. It really does. It really does. Mm-hmm. Tina Fey, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tina Fey is, she, she's she's an interesting one mm. where it's like she was funny for a time, but now that that time has passed, it's just like, Ew. Yeah. If you watch some of the 30 Rocks episodes too, you're just like, it's real cringy. It's just like, like the stuff she does has Tracy Morgan doing. It's just like cringy. It's just, ew. yeah. And now, like the, the Asian character in Kimmy Schmidt, that was like, it's a, it's kind of a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's too recent. And she's a little bit too young to get a pass for that shit. Yes. Come on. She was what, like 19 or something when she was crowned? The- Are you talking about Ellie Kemper? Is that oh, the- oh, yeah. Uh, well, she was 19 and a student at Princeton. Mm. And, I, and it's so interesting the way that like, no shade, but white women just get to kind of like vacillate between infantilization and girl boss, like at any given moment. It's just like, excuse me, I went to Princeton. And mm. it's like, okay. And then it's like, oh, I was just a little girl at Princeton. Like, <laughs> yes. Okay, well, which one is it? Are you an idiot at Princeton or are you a future leader of the free world at Princeton? Right. Hmm. Do we want to talk at all about the ball itself, how gross it is, the patriarchy? It's uh, kind of gross. And like, it reminds me, I don't know if you guys ever watched this on Hulu, um, Harlots. I did not. No, I've not seen it. 
don't watch the fourth season because it's trash, but the first <laughs> seasons are really good because I did not know that like women were making all of these economic strides in 18th century London by being madams and prostitutes. Wow. And so they talk about how like women are buying property on their own and, you know, they had like this whole grooming system and placage system where you could become the mistress of, you know, a lord or lady and how this was all illegal, but so sanctioned, I guess, because it was making so much money and because like the aristocracy were so invested in it. And so there's a plot line in the first season where um, this group of aristocrats has a secret hunting society and what they hunt are young women. Ew. And they send out a couple of young women. One's a harlot, so not a virgin. And then one girl that they had, this one madam, making sure that she procured poor virgin girls, like you got to get her early or whatever. And they would send them out into the woods and tell them to just run and they would hunt them down like for sport. Wait, is this, so, so this is based on real stuff that happened? There was, uh, I looked it up and there was a controversy with one of King George III's sons and he was involved in some secret society. I don't know if they were hunting girls, but whatever they were doing with them was pretty vile. Yeah, because he got stabbed by one of the by one of the harlots. I'm sure he deserved it. Yeah, all of his children were pretty awful, especially the boys. But it was I guess it was kind of like an embellishment of that because mm -hmm. uh, it was set during that same time period. But it's just kind of weird to me. And then when you think of like eyes wide shut and stuff, Ooh, I was going to bring that up. I have a, a theory. About yeah, I feel like those are really prevalent. Like they really just have these secret societies. Yes. I mean, when, when I watched, I watched Eyes Wide Shut in the theater and granted, I think I was either rolling or tripping. I was on drugs, but I remember after watching it being like, I think they killed Stanley Kubrick because he made this movie. Cause you know, he had a heart attack. Like, yeah, not too long afterwards. Not too long after. And I'm like, I think they didn't want him to know. They didn't want him to put this out there, that this is a real thing. And I, you know, that's, I was on drugs. But years later, I went online because like it came back to me, that theory. And I was like, let me just Google this and see if anybody else has had that thought. Other people have had that thought. It wasn't just me. I wasn't, it wasn't just the drugs. So. Well, no, I've, I've definitely heard about that. And I also remember hearing there was this movie called apt pupil that came out in the 90s where this kid finds out that his neighbor who is was a nazi that was yeah he finds out his neighbor was a nazi and i i can't remember everything that happened i read the book and then i rented the movie on amazon and it had david schwimmer in it as like the teacher who's trying to you know get this kid on the right path or whatever and I remember reading in GQ about like all of these different incidents that kept happening on the set of that movie because of the what the direction that they were initially going with it. Like they were about to expose some stuff. Really? And I got always say half jokingly, but like on on the on the real, I'm serious. Everything is invented by Nazis and black or black people. And America has both. Mm. So it's like 
nine times out of 10, either what you're using, what you're thinking about, what you're doing, either like a black person came up with it and it was stolen by a white person, like light bulbs and all that other type stuff, or like your microwave, it was Nazis. <laughs> I mean, the first fascists were here, the KKK. They were, I think, the first fascists. Yeah, yeah and, and like the, you know, not just the Nazis, but like, Franco in Spain, Mussolini, they all learned from the KKK, from the KKK. I mean, and, Hitler loved the KKK. Right. And then you have Operation Paperclip after the war. So it's like, yeah, they, they definitely. And then, you know, even bigger than that, you had the fact that uh, George Bush's grandfather, Prescott Bush, was bankrolling the Nazis like he was fundraising for mm -hmm. them. Yes. Up until 1940. Right. I didn't realize it was that late, but wow. Yeah, it took like an act of Congress to make him stop. You know what? I'm going to join a secret society. Which one? I don't know. So a few years ago, back when I was living in Boston, uh -huh. I left some miles on AirTran, and AirTran was about to go out of business. And they were like, just cash your miles in for some magazine subscriptions. I'm like, the fuck do I want? I don't want any of these magazines. <laughs> and they were all pretty terrible. One of the magazines was The Economist, which was terrible. And I was like, I'm going to subscribe to The Economist. I want to hear what these people are talking about. Yes. And somehow the combination of my Boston zip code and being subscribed to The Economist got me put on this rich white people mailing list. Oh, shit. Now, I started getting, like, no lie, like free gift certificates for steakhouses. Like, here's $100. Come eat here. Nothing. I got an invitation in the mail to join something called the Algonquin Club. Oh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. I've it's heard of the Algonquin Club. Yeah, well, apparently all you have to do is live in a decent white zip code and subscribe to The Economist and they'll invite you to come join. <laughs> yeah. So for whatever reason, both online and in real life, no one seems to believe that I am a Black woman. I am commonly read as a white man what yeah it's a, it's a strange strange phenomenon i think it's pretty i think it's pretty clear from your twitter that you're a black woman apparently it is not like i am always they're always like well you as a white man shouldn't be saying that and i'm like well so the thing is i am not <laughs> oh, i'm not a white nor a man so there's that like, and it doesn't matter. I used to have, I try to keep the same Abby. So somebody had like, did a bad Photoshop of, I love Tom Hiddleston. I love Loki. And so I had, it was like Tom Hiddleston's face on somebody else's picture. And I had that as my Abby for the longest. And everybody thought I was a white man, even though to me, it looked like a white woman. Mm. Like, I don't know. But in, it has, it's bled over into other areas of my life. So I used to be in the military. It's not something that I talk about a lot or that I'm proud of or that I particularly enjoy, but I was J an army officer. J Jason was in the army. Yeah. yeah. So I was an army officer and like the combination of my name and being a military officer. And I think I used to be subscribed to The Economist as well, as well as like Business Insider and something else. And then I, uh, I speak German. So I was subscribed to this German magazine um, as well. And like the combination of these things, plus where I lived at the time, I was always, oh, and I was, I was in the American Legion. 
And like the combination of that, it was just always stuff coming to me. And so I heard about the Algonquin Club and basically these societies were formed, like the, there's one called the Iroquois Confederation as well. So I was thinking like, oh, these are Iroquois people who are trying to like preserve their history. No, are they white people trying to co-opt. Yep, they just stole the name. Yeah, they're they're not even just stealing the name. They're trying to steal their whole lineage so that they can like make claim to indigeneity. Jesus. The the entitlement of white people just always blows my mind. And I'm like, it's it's just so crazy to me. And it's like if you really just sit and think about it for too long, it'll make you it'll just make you like go insane, like on a Lovecraftian level. <laughs> Because white people will just pretend like I have no idea how all of these things, you know, came to be and how mm -hmm. they continue. And I'm just so divorced from this process. Mm -hmm. But then you find out that they're part of a society whose entire agenda is based on erasing the Algonquin speaking people from their own history so that they can make a claim to indigeneity because they know they committed a genocide. I mean, it's like they can, they, it's like they get to simultaneously purposely do just these evil things. That's so evil to me to just yes. like steal these people. First, you murder them, kick them off of their land, erase them from, you know, history. And now you're taking their history for yourself. You know, it's funny because. I think I had a tweet a while ago. It's sort of like relates to this, but like white people have this whole, a lot of them have this attitude of like slavery was so long ago, get over it. But then they hold on to the, the stupidest shit and they just keep committing the same thing that they've been doing, like the same genocides and like erasures that they've been doing for hundreds of years. So like on the one hand, they're like, just get over it. It was so long ago, but like, they're still mad about stuff that happened last year, you know? Yeah. It's, 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 it's they really know what they're doing. Because it's it is. They do know what they're doing. Yeah, they know what they're doing, but they like will simultaneously divorce themselves from it, which is why I understand what Toni Morrison meant when she was like, listen, don't even bother. I'm paraphrasing heavily, but she's just like, don't even bother. Just do, just do your work. Do what you were put here to do write your books, teach the kids, whatever it is that you do, just do that. Because talking to white people about racism is just going to drive you insane. Like they're not going to admit to it. They know what they're doing. They even know how much they're frustrating you when they pretend not to know what they're doing. Yeah. I think that's a good place to leave. Let, should we move on? That was a, that yeah. was a Oh, I was just going to say one more thing. Okay, say it. Loading yeah. my podcast. Kind yeah. Of. Oh, no. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. Uh, so I'm doing the history and fantasy series. And I did, I've done A Song of Ice and Fire. And I've done Harry Potter. And so my next episode is going to be on uh, A Wheel of Time, which is an incredibly dense uh, epic fantasy series that was written by Robert Jordan. But he died before he finished it. Uh, so someone else took it over. And so I had only read the first three books because I was like 24 books and 2,400 mm -hmm. characters. Like, man, gone somewhere. I'll look on the wiki. So I stopped reading it like midway through college. And I thought about picking it up. But as I was going through the episode and then I looked at this thread on Twitter where this lady is just like, she's 
was kind of annoyed because she's like, you know, non-European mythologies and things like that don't get to be told. And why can't we get like a Hindu mythology anime on Netflix or something she was talking about. And so I was thinking about it, like, as I started researching the Wheel of Time, it is almost entirely uh, East Asian mythology, but the characters are coded white. And they're like, no, they said they had bronze skin. I'm like, yeah, that could mean Spain. When you read something that's written by a white person, like in your mind, unless they say that these people are not white or white coded, that's the way you perceive it. Mm -hmm. Then when it gets adapted to the screen, which Wheel of Time has, the characters, especially the mains, are usually white. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know which one is more insidious, like the fact that you have relegated everybody else's, you know, cultural history and folklore to the margins, promoting your own, or that now because you've run out of ideas, you are whitewashing everybody else's mythology and capitalizing on it, making money from it in a way that the people who this actually belongs to never get to do. And so I'm going to be exploring that a little bit in my next episode. I look forward to listening to it. Yeah, so um, if you're listening to this show, I'm sure you know the hypothesis that COVID-19 was leaked from a Wuhan lab has re-entered the mainstream news cycle. And it's just more of the West's vilification of China. Yes. And it it is all based on the one from what I've read, the one report that the Trump administration did where they did try to do that same thing. They just tried to blame, you know, this leak at a lab. Um, And that's really the only intelligence there is. Air quotes intelligence there is. So it's being brought back into the discourse that this is, you know, possibly real. So Joe Biden. Both Biden and Fauci have chimed in saying that we have to entertain this as if it's a real possibility. And the thing is, it's a fucking outstanding claim. It's an outrageous claim. It's the sort of claim that requires just heaps of evidence. You Mm -hmm. can't make outstanding claims with minor evidence. Right. And I've read a couple like experts on Twitter who are just like, the evidence isn't there. This is ridiculous. I can't believe they're bringing this back into the discourse. And... I can, because what are they trying to do? They're trying to make China the big bad. And we need that. We meaning American capitalism and American imperialism. There has to be a powerful enemy to out. Yes. Yeah, they will create it if it doesn't exist. It's like they don't know what to do. I mean, America is so hooked on being the victor in an unnecessary war that they invaded Grenada. Like, for what? Just to have something to do. I think that another function of making China like a baddie is also to take the focus off of our conditions, the way we're living, the things we're having to go through. It's an easy way to get the people to like focus their anger at the other. You know, it's easy. It's it's like a a couple reasons why they why they're doing it. I I don't know. I'm gonna say something. I don't know if this is true. I'm not an expert on China. But I feel like it's also to um, stop China from 
actually being a world power and to like uh, basically kind of take down their Belt and Road Initiative that they're trying to do? They're so behind. They're so late on that. Like, I remember being in my officer training. This is back in 2009. And they were talking about a booklet that they had intercepted or whatever from some high level Chinese military defectors about their 2050 plan to kind of like overtake the United States as a global superpower. Do it. And I mean, even though I was maybe like three months out of uh, out of undergrad, I was just like, yeah, they definitely meant for you to find that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like China has had a continuous political and civic civilization for over 5,000 years at this point. The United States has barely won wars against like Vietnamese rice farmers and you and they didn't win you lost to Vietnamese rice farmers who didn't even have electricity and you had all these high-powered missiles and stuff they definitely meant for you to find all of that documentation because they wanted it to play on all of your wildest fears and they wanted you to overreact by increasing the amount of money that you were spending on military expenditures. They wanted you to get bogged down in, you know, engagements all over the world where you weren't always going to be successful. And they wanted you to ruin your international credibility in the process. And they've done that. And all of these things have come to fruition. And the thing about it is like with China being such an old civilization, they've had a lot of time to sit and watch. Like the Chinese weren't unaware of the Roman Empire. They just didn't choose to engage with them because that's just not the way the Chinese do things. They're like, we have everything we need over here. This is our sphere of influence. You do what you want over there. But they they were very much aware of everything that was going on in the Roman state. And one of the hallmarks of the Roman state and in its decay was the amount of money that they had to spend on military expenditures to try and keep all of those migrating, you know, Germanic tribes and, 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 you know, Near East tribes and everybody from coming into their borders and putting down internal insurrections and you had all those barracks emperors for a little while and at a certain point just to keep the existing borders of the empire together not even taking into account the number of internal crises that they had to deal with they were spending upwards of 80 percent of their gdp on military expenditures and that ultimately crushed the roman empire from within, they like imploded. Everybody right. thinks an invasion happened. No, Rome was invaded so By itself. many times when they were much broker and much smaller and they came out of that on top. But when you are devoting way too much of your money, just trying to hold yourself together militarily, the thing about the military, it's like a depreciating asset. It's like a car. You sink money into it, but you're never going to really be able to recoup anything. You're definitely Mm -hmm. not going to come out ahead. If you break even, then you're really lucky. So you want to keep your military expenditures to a level where it's it's sustainable and makes sense because they're never going to really make you money. Well, we don't do that here in this country. Um, What's that? What's that? What has happened is we have 
defense contractors in every single congressional district in this country. So there is a vested interest for every representative to keep feeding the military industrial complex because it provides jobs for their districts. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like providing actual material benefits because then it, yeah, like, like job, like jobs in and of themselves are not a benefit if the job, first of all, doesn't pay enough to like keep up with the cost of living. If the jobs, that's why they're having all this hiring crisis right now mm-hmm. because people are just, I mean, part up. of it is, you know, the, the, the stimmies and all that type of stuff. But part of it is just people are just starting to realize like, I was already tired of busting my ass, working two, three jobs just to keep myself afloat and being treated like crap. Now you want me to endanger my life and the lives of those that I love to do so? Like, no. Yeah, Jason and I talked about this a couple episodes ago about how there's somewhat of a general strike happening here because there's, you know, they don't pay a living wage. No one pays a living wage. Yeah, there's no worker shortage. This is a de facto general strike. It's not organized and people over the last year or so have had time to sit back and reflect and they've started i i think to be like wait a minute fuck this fuck this um and that's you know that's what's happening it's not a it's not a crisis for the you know workers um dana let me ask you what do you know or think about the belt and road initiative So Belt and Road is like, it's very interesting from like an economic standpoint, because yes, China is providing kind of like an alternative to the traditional debt traps and things like that. But one thing that like, I'm hesitant to uh, bring up, um, one thing that I'm hesitant to bring up online because people get so defensive is like, China is a member of every single one of those institutions that have been keeping the third world in these debt traps. Right. And they did it and like built up their influence in these, I mean, Paris club, you know, the WTO, everybody, Mm -hmm. they built up their influence over time and know they're not in any danger of overtaking the U S or the like basically the US and any of these institutions, but as much as any of the other G7, G20, G however many countries have built their economies on the backs of the third world, China did too. And mm-hmm. now and Belt and Road, it's not altruism. They're just they're just not pointing guns and they yes. don't want to get themselves too invested in the traditional forms of imperialism because again, they're trying to keep their military expenditures lower. Right. From what I understand, and I'm not an expert, but what I've read too is unlike say the IMF or the um, World Bank, when they give a country a loan, um, they basically take over that country's natural resources. And from what I understand, China hasn't really done that. They've kind right, of- Because to take over someone else's natural resources, it all go, it all kind of goes back to them just trying to find a more streamlined, less aggressive, less involved way. I mean, if you live in China where they have like every biome you can think of and mm-hmm. just tons of natural resources on, on your own, you don't really need to go and and colonize an African right. country because 
almost everything that they've got in their country, you've got in yours. Right. It's, but there's some things that they don't have or they don't want to invest in it. And it's just easier to outsource. I, I'm not like present at these Politburo meetings, so I don't know <laughs> right. what their rationale is. But if when you try to take over someone's land, there's always going to be resistance. Now mm-hmm. you got to commit troops and now you got to, you know, weather the PR storm of that. And what if they put up more resistance than need be? Like once you have committed yourself to boots on the ground, like this is going to be our land now, you've got to support that. And so that's I- how the UK wound up, you know, tumbling off of its pedestal after World War II because now you've created all of these dependencies in every corner of the globe. Right. And you barely got out of this last war unscathed, uh, uh, you know, intact, and you can't afford to maintain all of this anymore. Right. So I want to zoom out just a little bit um, and kind of talk about a bigger picture thing, which, again, I'm not an expert. I'm just learning about a lot of stuff in history. And so I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. Um, But in theory, communism, which China is not even really a communist country, it's socialism with Chinese characteristics. Obviously, they're what from what we know, they're working towards that. But a country can't be communist on its own. The whole world has to be communist on its own uh, together. So capitalism has to go away. do you think the way, I mean, there obviously is fear mongering around communism and like, oh no, China is trying to make everybody communist. Do you think there's some truth to that? And they're doing it in a way that isn't necessarily with their military. They're doing it in an economic way where they come in and, you know, help a country build up their in- infrastructure. So no. So the, the whole thing with, um, Chinese, you know, the characteristics, Chinese characteristics of socialism is it's, it's, it's from a historical perspective. So you have to go all the way back to like Mao in the 1930s. Right. And what he essentially said is like, China is in this unique place in its, you know, civilizational history where we have the numbers, the resources, And the past has created the conditions where we can become a strong socialist state. Now, another country might not have any of that. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, Korea might not have even a unified Korea. It might not have like those same characteristics. But Mao was like, we're at this particular point in Chinese history where we can really make this happen. And so every premier since then, because they don't have like a president so much as they have a person who holds certain titles that makes them the guy. And right now that's uh, Xi Jinping. But every premier since him has expounded on that. But it's all based on Marxist-Leninism, mm-hmm. which is the Marxist part of it is the you know historical like being at that moment in time and mm-hmm. It has to be influenced by certain past historical factors that lead you to this point. Because Marx was essentially saying like the way that capitalism is shaping up 
it's going to create this consciousness in working people that's going to eventually lead them to socialism. Why? Because nobody is just a mindless automaton that wants to live in misery. Like they're going to want to improve their lives once they see that, oh, all of this surplus and all of this economic activity can do so. The Leninism part of Marxist Leninism is the, okay, but we can't just sit back and like, oh, just let these things happen when they happen. We have to agitate for it. And then once we get it, we have to protect it. And because this only works if everyone is doing it, we have to spread it. Right. So uh, the Leninist part, I think that rather than taking a more aggressive approach like the Soviets did during the Cold War, where they would send arms to really anybody who purported themselves to be, you know, Marxist, which sometimes they were right, like in the case of Cuba, and sometimes they got it completely wrong, got hoodwinked, <laughs> like in the case of Afghanistan and Ethiopia. The Durham right. said they were socialists. They didn't do anything socialist. And they the USSR really should have proven it, but they were kind of like fighting for space and, and, and influence against like America who had like all of Western Europe and all these other countries under their sway. So China is like, we're not going to compete with you. Mm -hmm. We're just going to keep doing our thing. Right. And we're going to take a less aggressive stance and a less involved stance when it comes to promoting socialism, because you can't, I guess the way they think about it is like, we can promote socialism all we want, but if you don't have the, you know, the engines in place, the right conditions, like the right circumstances already there's nothing we can really do right we're not going to fund that shit right they're not right they're not going to fund it but they will help you because a a big thing is you got to have you got to have some economic activity already going on right and the thing about a lot of african countries is formal economic institutions and a formal economy the formal economy is really really small the informal economy is bustling grow always growing because i mean african people have needs and wants like everybody else Duh. but if they can't use a federally funded highway to do it then they'll just figure out some other way to do it so right. there's like two economies sometimes three because you'll have like the illegal economy you know running parallel to the informal and formal economy so i there what i think china is trying to do is economically at least help them get to that point mm-hmm. but all and the then, other factors have to be in line as well. And they're like, we're not going to help you with your social issues. And right. Yeah. I've noticed that they, they, they don't get involved like that. Um, and I think maybe I'm mistaken, but I think that they realize that it's socialism with Chinese characteristics. And if it was to be somewhere else to be with that country's characteristics. Yeah. And, you know, you have to develop it yourself. Like nobody else can come in and tell and tell you your historical history. And there are countries that have done it like um, like Tanzania. They don't call it socialism with Tanzanian characteristics, but it is an explicitly humanist Swahili based, you know, not just Swahili language, but like Swahili philosophy based kind of socialism that Julius Nairi promulgated. And it was also, uh, you know, as I talked about in my Christianity series, it was also influenced a lot by 
the half Muslim, half Christian population of Tanzania. So you really, it's one of those things. It's kind of like, I don't know, Ikea furniture, you know, socialism is like Ikea furniture. (laughs) That's a great analogy. You have your base stuff and then you can just do whatever you want with it. You can configure it in a bunch of ways. You can write it to whatever works for you. Maybe we should stop saying the word socialism and communism and just not say those words, but do the things behind them. Yeah, just I'm, say I'm, those words. I'm just one of those people. I'm not wedded to any type of socialism because I think that, you know, I need to keep my circumstances and the circumstances of the people around me into consideration. Like Juche, I can admire Juche because it really did keep North Korea together after being decimated in the Korean War. And so the level of development that they have been able to achieve, like it boggles my mind. But Juche has no relevance to me. Like I'm not about to be calling myself a Juche. That has nothing to do with me. I'm right. Not Korean, first of all. Right. Second of all, I don't live in a country that has been shelled to almost complete annihilation. Right. And I got a totally different set of circumstances that I need to work with. Well, I don't do it. Do you have anything else to say about the, the vilification of China? I mean, you know, it's very blatant and obvious that in the like um, that Americans and Westerners in general are just like afraid of China being, uh, you know, ascendant. And it's like, first of all, if there was anything that you could really do about it, it's too late. Right. It's too late. Also, they can manufacture their own vaccines now. So you can't really get a leg up there. And what's so funny is that all China is doing is just kind of playing on like the worst aspects of Americanism. Yeah. Which is like the selfishness, the bullying, <sighs> the bullying nature, yes. the tendency towards wanton violence. And the the exceptionalism. The exceptionalism. You know, all of their all they're doing is just whether it's sincere or not, because China in its sphere of influence, you know, I can't speak to how other Asian countries have historically related to China, but you know, internationally, they've never really shown that they cared too much right. <laughs> about what was going on, on on the other side of the planet. Right. So an ascendant China does not bother me because me either. I feel like they've been ascendant a- before and they they didn't bother me. So why would they do it now? I feel like there's a lot of people on the left too who um will, you know, say all these leftist things, but then they default right back to American imperialism. You know, they don't really think think it through. Yeah, because they start getting like worried about their own position or whatever. So my mom lived in China and she said that the Chinese have like this running joke. Like even if we were, you know, trying to make everybody become Chinese or whatever, like there's plenty of room here. <laughs> And so, but the thing about the Chinese is like, there's nothing that they're really, there's nothing culturally, especially that they're trying to export to anyone else. So all of that, well, well, I I won't be able to be American. I'm like, first of all, I don't know why you would be so protective of that, but I guess if you don't have anything else to kind of go on, then that's all you've got, which is what I think is what whiteness is. Cause like my boyfriend is German, but he's German and he's like, white people are just I don't know, like their whole being seems to be predicated on 
being terrible to other people. He right? Like, Germans have a. He was like Germans. We've done some terrible things, but we've got a lot more to us than just that. Also, they owned the terrible things they did. They. I think they get too much credit for that. That's that's PR too. They get. You're probably right. You're probably right. They do because there's a surge of German nationalism and just right wingism going on now. All not just in Germany, everywhere, all of Europe, everywhere, everywhere. Things like this, like they had to shut down the German Secret Service for a whole year because how many like neo Nazis were in the Secret Service at all levels. Then when you think about the fact that like pretty much everybody that ran the West German government on like a federal level, a state level, local levels had uh, had recently, very recently been tied to the Nazi party and they have airports and parks and everything else named after them don't give Germany too much. Okay. They I won't have I, a lot to atone I can, for. I can, I can uh, retract that comment. I, I'm sure they do have a lot to atone for. You know, giving the reparations to Namibia is great, but the cynic in me is like, so what are you covering up by doing this? <laughs> right. Right. Jason. It's all PR. It, everything is. <laughs> you have anything you want to say? We should probably wrap no, up. I just wanted to thank Dana for coming on. Dana. Thank you so much, Dana. Yes. Thank you so much. You're so, 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 it's a fantastic podcast. Seriously. And it's it, from the perspective on history that we don't normally get to hear or see because most history is just told by white guys. And I like that you're a black woman telling history from a, my opinion, a better perspective. Yeah, I try to like talk about history in a concurrent way. Like when I talk about how, you know, there were mammoths and there were mammoths still on earth when Jesus was, you know, walking the earth and things like that. Like people don't, people don't think about it like that. Like I used to wonder, okay, well, what was, you know, 99% of the world doing while all this was going on in Europe? I've always felt like that because I'm I'm Middle Eastern. My dad's Egyptian. My mom's part Lebanese. And I always have felt like, why do we always only hear about European and American history? Like, I don't. And you don't hear not, about what's going on with anybody else. With anybody else. It's not European like. came into contact with them. Right. And it's not like they didn't have their own complex, interesting history to them as well. It's just like, why do we always have to focus on white people? Yeah, it's because of like who, you know, where we live and who's running things right now. But it's like I always say, well, like the Bible says, you know, everything made by man must fall. So we may not, you know, live to see the promised land or anything like that. But I feel like we are in a period of like intense change. Just agree. This can't continue. The field has been leveled by the explosion of social media and the internet in general. Mm -hmm. I also just just, think, sorry, go ahead. No, where you don't have to like toe the party line. Like I don't have to really subscribe to any of the mainstream American news outlets to get any news. Right. I also think that we're in a period where the inequality is just become so great and it's late stage capitalism and i just i don't know how this system can hold any longer we we are at the end of um liberal democracy we're going to see socialism or we're going to see fascism and yeah i mean yep well that's a nice happy place to end (laughs) 
I mean, but you know what? It's it's okay because people don't tend to live under tyranny for very long. Like I said, like people want to be free. Don't people don't want to live in fear. So it will, I think I, I'm gonna sound like Dr. Pangloss here, but I think it'll all work out. <laughs> Dana, Dana, thank you so much. Jason. Thank you guys for having me. It was so, it was so interesting. I like yeah. you guys' podcast. I like the, the topics that you guys get into. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like we have a a good we've been friends for like 20 years. So we we are old. Yeah, we're old. Um, so yeah, we it's have a natural, easy, you know, back and forth. And thank you guys for joining us again this week. Yes, thank you. And check out Dana's podcast. It's really great. It's just really great. Um, and until next week, Jason. As always, our theme music is composed by Kevin McLeod License through Creative Commons. Thank That's, you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. All right.